0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in this episode I'm joined down the line from LA by one of the world's most successful non-fiction writers. He's been voted as one of the top 100 most influential people by Time magazine. He's almost a constant on the New York Times bestseller list and he's even conquered the world of podcasting with revisionist history. I'm delighted to be speaking to Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, welcome. Thank you. And Malcolm has chosen a number of objects that have inspired him. In your books, Malcolm, you've explored topics like how we can make split-second decisions in Blink, the story of success in Outliers, and the advantages of disadvantages in David and Goliath. You've said people are experience-rich and theory-poor and don't have opportunities to collect and organise their experiences and make sense of them. Is it your aim to get people to look at things in a different way?
1: Yes, I think that's the aim of almost any writer the very best kind of... Writing fiction or non-fiction is supposed to be transformative. That's been my um, ambition as well.
0: And how do you think your style of journalism has changed since you started writing? You've written five very successful books, and you've written extensively for The New Yorker. How do you think you've changed?
1: Well, I'd like to think I've gotten better, although I have no idea. Maybe I've gotten worse. (laughs) I might be a little bit more kind of patient in how I tell stories. I feel like in the beginning I was coming from the world of newspapers, and newspapers teach you to be in a hurry. And so I've been trying to slow down ever since then. The rhythms of a book are different than the rhythms of a, of a newspaper story. I don't know, the things I'm interested in have kind of broadened. I'm, you know, I kind of cast my net perhaps a little more widely now than I did in the past. And those would be the main things, I, I suspect. Well, the
0: latest thing that you are interested in and are very successful at is your podcast, Revisionist History. It takes a look at stories from the past and reinterprets them. You cover stories like the successful 19th century artist who disappeared or a cardiologist revisiting the research that his father made years ago. What was it like making the leap from writing to podcasting?
1: Uh, Well, in the beginning, it seems like it's very similar. You think, oh, I'm just writing. I'm doing the same thing as before and I'm just going to speak it now. But I discovered it's profoundly different because listening is a profoundly different experience than reading. It's a much more emotional and intimate experience. So you have the ability to reach people in a very different way and tell a different kind of story. So I think my podcasts are a good deal more emotional and emotionally forward than my writing is, which my writing is a lot more kind of um, dispassionate. So that's been a big difference. And also, in a podcast, you're dependent on the quality of the person that you're interviewing. They have to be compelling, whereas in the page, they don't have to be compelling. They merely need to say something of value, and you could kind of dress it up if they're boring. You can't hide someone who's very dull on a podcast. So it changes who you talk to and how you talk to them.
0: And I heard that you were a little bit worried about how you would sound in terms of your own voice. Obviously, you've done two series now of revisionist history. Do you feel like you are comfortable with your own voice now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone hates the sound of their own voice. That's another constant. So I'm no different. I would rather not listen to myself on the air, but I have been told by enough people that I am passable, (laughs) that that I have stopped worrying about it. But You know, it's just, it's always a little off-putting to be confronted with yourself in a different medium.
0: I agree, but I I also agree that you you get a pass from me. (laughs) As promised, you've chosen some objects for us today, inspired by the podcast, I believe the first is a Georgia Tech logo. Can you explain why you've chosen? It's a, it's a golden G and a T combined in the classic logo style. Um, why did you choose that one?
1: Well, I was, you know, in my second season, I told uh, a number of stories, or one in particular, about school integration in the United States. And it's something I've always been interested in because it's a personal story. My father, who was an academic, a teaching at the University of West Indies in the late fifties, and he needed access to some books, and back then, of course, nothing was available on the internet, so you would write away to the nearest university that had the books that you needed, and you would see if you'd come and visit and so the the nearest university with the books he needed was Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and he wrote a letter saying he'd like to come and use their library. and they said yes. But what he didn't realize is that after they said yes, they, they freaked out because they realized they had invited someone from the University of West Indies in Jamaica to visit their facilities without knowing whether that person was white or black. And it was, it was a segregated school and they were in the middle of, and a lot of, under a lot of pressure to integrate. And the last thing they wanted to do was to bring in some black guy, you know, in the middle of all of this controversy. And so they panicked and spent weeks trying to figure out whether my father was black or white because, of course, you couldn't just call someone who was in Jamaica in 1958. You know, there wasn't a direct phone line, et cetera, et cetera. And he, finally, they tracked him down, and they, they asked him point blank the day before he was going to leave. Mr. Gladwell, we have a strange question for you. Are you white? And he said, I'm white. And they said, well, thank God. My father told me that story actually very late in life, and it just, just reminded me that there were people still alive today who remember that era in American history. And it got me going on, so thinking, well, I'd like to do, that would be a, a really fascinating podcast to do, to kind of tell these stories from the people who are still around. And then that led to the podcast episode called This Becan's Period of Adjustment.
0: You were saying earlier that podcasting has to have emotionally direct way of doing things. It's not writing. It's something quite different. Do you think podcasting has encouraged you to look at stories that are closer to you personally?
1: Well, for podcasting, yes. I don't know whether it's changed the subjects I choose for my writing, but definitely because not once I have understood the emotional power of this medium, then it makes sense to do stories that have emotional meaning for me. And so in the second season, I do have an episode that is very personal. I would never have written that as a story. It would never have occurred to me.
0: What would you say is the overriding theme across your books and podcasts? What, what's, what are the themes that link them?
1: There are a handful of subjects which I return to that interest me. I'm very interested, I realise, although I would never have said this, have recognised this explicitly, but I think there is a lot of interest in my books, my writing and my podcasts, in the issue of in the question of power, who has it and what it means not to have it. What are the responsibilities of having it? I'm very interested in in deviance, in people who fall outside the norm for whatever reason, good or, or bad. You know, I'm interested in the exceptional, and I'm also interested in the on the other side in people who have fallen out of the mainstream for one reason or another. So crime, you know, I, I've spent a huge amount of time in my books talking about crime, for example. The Latest book I'm writing. Almost every story is about someone who is a deviant, who has defied the orthodoxy in usually a negative way. The book is an attempt to understand how we deal with them and make sense of them.
0: In contrast to that, your book Outliers talks about the factors that turn somebody from the ordinary into the extraordinary. And there's a lot of success stories in that book. Would you like more people to be able to recognize their talents and engineer an environment where they can help themselves? I suppose that links up to what you're talking about in your latest book.
1: In my latest book, I'm taking that idea, that sort of set sort of observations one step further and saying, do we carry around in our heads ideas or concepts which inhibit either our own success or our ability to understand and make sense of others? You know, as opposed to talking about the importance of the environment that is given to us, now I'm very interested in the importance of the environment that we create for ourselves the mental environment the assumptions that we bring to bear on what's happening around us the latest book is sort of like a a cross between Blink which is all about the personal environment and Outliers which is about the the world that's given to us it's midway between those two perspectives Mm. do you
0: think that people who haven't had advantages earlier on can succeed in later life. You've spoken of certain disadvantages that can be advantageous. Do you think people can turn things around who haven't had those advantages or uh, unusual disadvantages that then spur them on?
1: I think with David and Goliath, I was kind of deepening the argument in Made and Outliers about what an advantage is. And... An advantage is very often something I argued in David and Goliath that starts out as a disadvantage. You know, one very powerful route to strength is through a weakness, is through compensating for a weakness. And just that idea I thought was very interesting and kind of, you know, if you talk to successful people about their, why they are where they are, as often as not they will talk about something they overcame as opposed to something that they were given. I always thought that was interesting and worthy of exploration. That route is a riskier road to success. It's just a little more, you know, there are often as many failures as successes along that road.
0: In Outliers, you talk about success being not simply talent but hard work, 10,000 hours of hard work, in fact. Were you surprised by how popular that research became?
1: I'm always surprised by Uh, when things in my book become popular. That was sort of a throwaway thing when I was writing it. It never occurred to me that it would become a kind of cultural meme. But that's only because the author never knows how their books will be read. You know, It's a constant source of surprise to me and everyone else, how how the world will receive um, what we've done. But I suppose I sort of touched a chord with that because the kind of mythology around hard work, you know, which fades in and out over time, which is, in a we're in a moment where it's very much in vogue. And I think perhaps that's what people were responding to.
0: Um, you say look is also a factor in success. And but why do we always try and discount it and say yeah. it's, all, it's all about hard work and it's, you know, the, the person who works the hardest will be the winner? Why do people discount it?
1: Well, if you think about the hard work message, it's ultimately quite a kind of Self-serving message, you say, I worked hard. So it's a way of celebrating your own efforts and control over your career. Whereas luck is the opposite. Luck is when you recognize luck, you are surrendering your own agency. And you're saying, in, in one way, you're saying, this has nothing to do with me. Um, so they're, they're, they're contrary narratives. And very often what happens is people choose one. And don't acknowledge the other, as opposed to simply saying, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a perfectly understandable contradiction here. You know, I'm the product of both my own hard work and also a series of lucky breaks that had nothing to do with me. For some reason, I, I don't entirely understand. People have difficulty crediting those two very different modes simultaneously.
0: Right. On to your next object. I'm looking at a photo here of a sort of lawnmower that you ride on, uh, a big John Deere-style green and yellow vehicle, which still wouldn't get you very far if you were trying to get to, let's say, an off-licence. Can you explain more about why you've chosen this, this particular
1: lawnmower? In one of my revisionist history broadcasts, it was about the legendary country singer George Jones, who I argued is the sang the saddest song of all time. The episode is all about why country music is so well adapted to sentimental and teary music. And part of that story is George Jones himself, the singer who has one of the great country music voices of all time. And The Lawnmower is a famous George Jones story when his family was so desperate to cut him off booze, they took away his keys so he couldn't go to the store and get whiskey. And so he climbed on the lawnmower and drove himself eight miles into town to buy a bottle of whiskey. And it's a, it's a famous country story that captures, I think, so much of what is um, disarming about the culture of country music. That it, you know, it's kind of celebration of frailty and uh, human weakness. Whereas rock and roll is, You know, it does not have those same fixations. You know, there's a richer and deeper emotional palette in country music. And the fact that one of the greatest practitioners of country music, you know, wrote his riding lawnmower into town to get a lot of whiskey is just kind of perfect. I mean, you can't sort of sum it up better than that, as far as I can tell.
0: No. <laughs> I was almost moved to tears listening to that particular episode. Yeah. It reaches quite an emotional peak towards the end. I won't spoil it for anybody who's going to listen to that. Do you do you get that reaction from a lot of other people who've listened to the podcasts? Do you feel like you've, you know, a lot of people have been moved by the, by not just that episode. I'm thinking also of another episode about a young boy called Carlos who mm-hmm. is a disadvantaged Youth who's trying to get an education again. I won't go too much into it, but that was another one that also moved me. I was listening to it whilst in public and just wanting to just slump down somewhere and (laughs) and despair, which which I almost did. But um, do you get that reaction from people a lot about the about the podcasts?
1: I do, and that's the reaction that I want. If you can move people up to or past the point of tears, I think you've that's a measure of success. You know, I think laughter is very easy and tears are hard. And I think there's something, as I said before, uniquely powerful about this medium that allows you to touch people deeply. And I, I think that that's a, a kind of worthy goal of the medium. You know, I think historically that's what literature has done is to transport us to another place. I would be remiss if I didn't tap into the emotional power of this this meeting. I mean, you're you're literally whispering inside someone's ears. I mean, it's it's incredible. You know, they put the headphones in, and you are you're you're the only one talking to them at that moment. That's a, that's an extraordinarily privileged position to be in.
0: Well, we were talking about outliers before. And we've also touched on David and Goliath, which looks at the road to success in the opposite way. How disadvantages and setbacks can sometimes be the fact that actually help someone. For those who haven't read that book. How does something like dyslexia be a factor in success?
1: Well, I just began with the observation that so many um, very successful people were dyslexic, particularly entrepreneurs, and just talked to them. Did they consider that to be an obstacle that they overcame or something that was actually crucial in helping them develop certain skills they wouldn't have otherwise developed? And they overwhelmingly gave the latter answer. And they said, you know... Because I couldn't read or write, I was forced from a very young age to take all kinds of different strategies, to build teams, you know, to have other people help me, to problem solve, because I couldn't do the thing that school required me to do, to become verbally persuasive. They had to talk their teachers them the past. Uh They learned to cope with failure. Their schooling was one series of failures after another. And, you know, some people, many people who have dyslexia are defeated by that. But there did seem to be this core of people for whom that was a um, that experience was a kind of crucible. It made them, it toughened them and taught them all kinds of skills that would prove to be enormously valuable when they became entrepreneurs later in life. And so that that I found that, the story of that kind of transformation to be really fascinating.
0: There are certain assumptions about what's good and bad for us in society. Do we do we have it wrong in that case?
1: We do, and perhaps the way to praise it is perhaps we should try harder to learn what makes those those few who can turn that disability into a positive, What what makes them different.
0: If we can relate that to the current political climate, do you think there are Davids that can fight back and succeed in a world where it seems like the most powerful just continue to sustain that power, as you alluded to earlier, you know, the people who are in an elite position, continue to propagate that? Do you think that uh, that the Davids can fight back?
1: I think they can in various times and places. There are times when the, the fortunes of the Davids look a little bleaker than others, and we may be in one of those moments now, but I do take solace in the fact that things, you know, the order of things eventually always turns upside down. It just might be that we have to wait a little longer than... We expect or fight a little harder than we expect. The giants don't stay on top forever. I agree.
0: <laughs> um, on to your next object that you've chosen. You've chosen a packet of French fries. Another story close to your heart.
1: Yes, it's a good example of how in the podcast world, it's so easy to draw from your own experience. I I remember as a child eating McDonald's French fries and they were delicious. <laughs> um, and they kind of sparked a lifelong. Love affair with French fries. And then McDonald's changed the recipe in 1990. Changed from frying them in beef towel to frying them in vegetable oil. And they have never been as good. And I decided, you know, that the question raised by that, why would a restaurant that does one thing transcendently well destroy that thing? What on earth was their reasoning? I mean, I've always been kind of curious about that. And so I did a podcast episode on it, which goes in a million Really fun, unexpected directions, but at its heart, it's just you know my you know, young 20-something Malcolm, aghast that his french fries have been taken away from him, and I've stewed over that for 30 years, and part of the fun of having this little podcast is I can explore all of these little idiosyncratic obsessions of mine, of which french fries are one. In that episode, you know, as you know, I enlisted in support of this famous food lab, and they made me fries the old way, and I was, you know, I was transported back to that magic of my, of my youth, when fries were, were a, a transcendent object. So we had a lot of fun doing that show.
0: Well, I was inspired before starting recording this particular podcast to go and get some French fries and test them out around the corner from the recording studio. So thank you for that. In that particular episode, it starts off with a guy called Phil Sokolov who's had a heart attack, and he's the one who spends millions of dollars of his own money taking adverts out against the fast food giants in order to get them to change their recipes, which obviously they did, much to to your disgust and everyone else's who had tasted those old-school French fries. It's strange, at the start of the podcast... Phil Sokolov appears, to use the David and Goliath analogy again, he seems like a a David battling the the multinational fast food giants at the start, but then you somehow spin that around towards the end, and whilst certainly not slighting Phil Sokolov, you play around with the idea of who the Goliath is and who the David is. Do you think that's true?
1: Or at least I play around with the notion that he absolutely was a David who took on the Giants, I think his crusade in the end was misguided. These lopsided battles that are fought in the world—it is not always the case that the underdog is the preferred victor. Sometimes people do battle against the status quo, and the status quo is fine or a good idea. You know, you know, we shouldn't always romanticize the Davids in any of those conflicts merely because you know they are emotionally appealing. Their battle is emotionally appealing to us.
0: In what way did you want to make your podcast different to the other podcasts that are out there? It's definitely something that's growing and growing. There are people like Ira Glass on This American Life or NPR-style types of podcasts. How did you want to make your, your podcast stand out?
1: Well, I wanted it to be very personal and sensitive. I don't mean that it would talk about, talk about me, but it would reflect my own preoccupations. So, you know, This American Life, the gold standard of American podcasting is journalism. I mean, it's, it is rigorously reported journalism in which the reporter takes a back seat to the story. I didn't want to take a back seat. I wanted to take a front seat to the story, and I wanted to be very much, you know, an opportunity for listeners to participate in my, in my obsessions preoccupations. I wanted to invite people to kind of share my mental world. I thought that would be the most fun thing. And also I wanted to do so many podcasts out of these interview shows. And I wanted to do something scripted, something, you know, things of timeless, you know, that that you can listen to a revisionist history podcast from two years ago. And hopefully five years from now, you can listen to it. And it will seem as current and touch on themes that are as current as those in the present day.
0: Revisionist history focuses on individual personal stories. And you've been writing stories like this as staff writer for The New Yorker, as you say, since, I think, 1996. And some of those essays became part of the collection What the Dog Saw, um, which is also available on Penguin. You're obviously very skilled at getting interesting stories out of people, have you learned that? I mean, again, as you said at the very start of this, you hope that you've got better at, at things, as we all do. But was that something that you have grown up doing? Did you elicit stories from people growing up?
1: I don't think I was a very good interviewer. I'm still not a great interviewer. When I was at the Washington Post, spent 10 years there, When you are a newspaper reporter. You'd better learn how to interview people. That's 75% of the job. Um, so I got a kind of extended course and how to do that reasonably efficiently when I was there. I've been capitalizing on what I learned there ever since.
0: And do you think that everybody has a story to tell? I suppose that old question, does, you know, everybody has a novel in them, which I don't necessarily believe. Um, does everybody have a story that you could potentially make into a podcast?
1: They may have a piece of a story that could be made into a podcast. Or maybe a better right way to say it is: everyone has a story, but we might not be able to tell it. You know, it just it might, might not be either. It may not be accessible to them, or it may be too personal. Or you know, there's you know, there's, there's a large category of great stories, but a much smaller category of usable stories. And if you're going to put something on the air, it has to be usable. It has to be you have to be comfortable saying it and re- revealing things and. Reflecting on things, and it's simply not true of of many stories in people's lives.
0: Now, onto your next object that you've chosen, which is a pair of running shoes. They're a blue pair. I won't mention the the make of them. They're pretty random, but they relate to another podcast called "A Good Walk Spoiled." Could you tell us why you've chosen these running shoes?
1: It's funny. I'm in L.A. as I'm speaking to you, and then whenever I'm in L.A., I stay in. The, guest house of a friend of mine, which is right next to a country club called Brentwood Country Club, a big golf course, smack dab in the middle of the west side of L.A., and I'm a big runner. All the runners of this part of L.A. run around the perimeter of the golf course. There's a huge chain link fence around it, and there's a little track between the chain link fence and the curb. We all run on that track. Every time I run, I wonder, why am I all the other runners running on this little narrow, rocky dirt track, when there's this magnificent golf course next to us. And no one's ever on the golf course. And as it turned out, as I, when I did my, as I dug into it, the golf course only exists because it really doesn't pay any taxes. It gets a special deal from the city. It allows it to avoid paying property taxes, because if it paid property taxes, it couldn't exist. It's 300 acres in the middle of some of the most expensive real estate in the world. So I, you know, like a good, proper runner, I got outraged. I said, this is incredible. Why why am I being banished this track while this freeloading golf course has a big gate around it? And went on it. So I decided that to do a podcast about it and had a lot of fun with mocking the game of golf and all of the absurdities of its continued existence. You know, it was the first episode of season two, and... You always want to get things off with a, with a good controversial bang. And I thought it was got people all riled up, all the golfers, and all the non-golfers got very uh, excited and uh, enthusiastic. <laughs> and, and we were off the races. All in all, it was just great fun. And since there was going to be so much emotionally heavy stuff to come, I thought it was good that we um, started with a playful episode.
0: It Certainly was it raised the the issue of of the non tax paying powerful people, and we we obviously touched upon power and privilege and how people are excellent at holding on to it earlier on in the podcast. How do we break that cycle of privilege I, I only say that because it it raised the awareness of the issue to me, and podcasts are obviously meant to entertain and engage the listener but do you feel like you're part of raising awareness in order to break that cycle of privilege?
1: Well, I mean, these cycles of privilege, as I said before, are very difficult to break. I mean, listen, you're talking to me from England. Um, you know how many, how many um, fancy, powerful English people are members of the, of uh, our peers or part of the aristocracy, or inherited vast tracts of land. I mean. English-class system has been around for centuries, and and not as powerful as it once was, but um, uh, still has an awful lot of control over English society. So it's not easy. And I feel like in recent years, the powerful have grown a lot savvier about how to cement their status. Um, You know, the um, hereditary elite have been... Kind of supplanted by the cognitive elite, but the cognitive elite, if anything, are um, are even more adept at maintaining their privileged position, and particularly for their children. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't think, I don't think podcasts can solve those kinds of problems. They can just get people, make people aware. Of
0: them. That's fair enough. My band has just written a whole album about that, so uh, I, I'm. In there with you, Malcolm. There's an element of raising self-awareness in your books and your podcasts, as we've just said. In your hugely popular book, Blink, you dissect the way our minds function in the split second that we make decisions. Can we train our subconscious to alert our conscious to make the right
1: decisions then? Your unconscious is simply the sum total of the experiences that you have as a human being. And by changing those experiences, then you change the nature of your unconscious reactions. Uh, If you would like to you know to have better unconscious reactions to people different from yourself from different different backgrounds different colors different what have you then you need to expose yourself to people like to people like that you know it's to sort of give your unconscious data that allows it to you know to crunch the numbers and reach a different conclusion you want to banish prejudice from your heart then you have to take steps to Engage with those people who you are feel you are prejudiced against, and give your unconscious diff- a different database to deal with. It's a simple matter, you know. You want to you want to change the outcome of an algorithm. You you have to feed in different data, and your unconscious is essentially just a giant decision-making algorithm. And I think we're neglectful of the need to kind of feed that algorithm appropriately. You know, people who live in entirely class and race segregated environments ought not to be surprised that they hold negative biases against those different from themselves. How could they not? There is nothing in their mental algorithm to allow them to reach a positive conclusion. This is part of what it means to educate yourself, to be a better person, to maximize the Number and variety of experiences that make up who you are.
0: And do you think our gut instincts have become clouded with so much noise out there? I'm thinking Twitter and twenty four seven social media, Facebook, whatever, whatever your your poison of choice. Um, do you think that that's interfering with with our instincts?
1: I think that it's changing them. I don't know whether I would goes so far as to say it's. I mean, our unconsciouses are capable of absorbing astonishing amounts of information i think it would just differ on depending on how you use those information streams what your unconscious makes of them
0: okay onto your final object that you've chosen we've got a photo of a statue here it's the statue of the foot soldier of birmingham why have you chosen this particular statue i'll, I'll give a brief description of it it's of a white police officer seemingly pushing away a young black boy and there is to the fore of this particular sculpture there's a fierce Alsatian baring its teeth and it looks very much like the long hand of the law is having a a prejudiced effect which the podcast that it it comes from the foot soldier of Birmingham allows us to take another look at this why did you choose this particular object
1: well you know that statue is based on perhaps the most famous photograph of the civil rights movement in the United States, which was of a policeman on the streets of Alabama during one of the most famous civil rights marches, essentially sicking his dog on a protester. And I wrote about that in my book, David and Goliath, and I wrote about how, how ambiguous, unexpectedly ambiguous the picture is. But I only had a small part of the story, and after David and Goliath came out, the book was read by the police officer in the photo. And he read my book and he turned to his wife and he said, because I had suggested in my analysis that the photo doesn't say that, doesn't actually show that this is a racist cop going after a protester with his dog. He's actually trying to restrain the dog. And the officer in the photo read David and Glad, turned to his wife and said, at last someone understands me. Because he had been for fifty years had been vilified as, you know, one of these brutal, vicious cops in White Alabama in the sixties. And then he died. And his widow called me up and said, You know, my husband before he died, read your book and said that he felt that you were the only one who understood him and and I would I thought, Oh that's so fascinating and I I said, can I come and see you and talk about it? And so I did. And then I tracked down the sculptor who made a sculpture base based on that photograph. And I tracked down friends of the police officer and I constructed an entire episode. I'm very proud of it. It's an alternate history of that moment. And it suggests to us that history is a good deal more complicated upon reflection than we sometimes realize.
0: In the episodes you just mentioned, and a number of the other episodes, you include rare found audio and old interviews. Does that seal the deal for you when you're deciding whether to include a story in your season?
1: No, it's just a bonus. I mean, you we always look for archival footage, don't always find it, particularly if the people we're talking about are dead. Uh, we don't really have any other choice. As it turns out, in, when it comes to civil rights... There's an extensive amount of archival material. There were these brilliantly executed exercises in oral history collections, and they're all over America. I mean, there's thousands of hours of tape, so it's a natural subject to explore in a podcast because you have such rich raw material.
0: There's 10 episodes a season of the podcast. When, when will we see another 10?
1: Next summer, all being well. Um, I'll start again in January and um, hopefully can do something as, as good as this season.
0: Looking forward to it. What else have you got on the cards? Obviously, we spoke earlier on about your new book. Can you tell us any more about it? And is, is there anything else in the pipeline?
1: Just begun my new book. It's, I'm very interested in the question of trust and how we evaluate people we can't trust. But I'm just starting and so there's not much to report, but um, I'm on the way. Um, And then I'll I'll do that for a while, and then I'll take a break and do the next season of Revision's History.
2: Well,
0: thanks very much for joining us today, Malcolm. I know it's early where you are in Los Angeles, so thanks for getting out of bed and talking to us here at the Penguin Podcast.
1: Good. Thank
0: you so much. Thanks a lot. You can follow us on Twitter, at Penguin UK Books, and you can see who else will be joining us in the Penguin Studios soon. From activist, Pussy Riot member and freedom fighter Maria Alakinia comes a raw, hallucinatory, passionate account of her arrest, trial and imprisonment in a penal colony in the Urals for standing up for what she believed in.
2: Silly girls, you must be frozen, the sergeant had said while we were climbing down the stone walls of Lobnoye Mesto, which was covered with ice in a torrent of snow. Minus 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Relative humidity, 85%. You stand on the stone walls, and it seems you'll fall any second. They are about 10 feet high, but it isn't really about the height. You can't let yourself fall, because there won't be a second time. We, Pussy Riot, went out to the square because we dreamed of a different history, because the one in which the president turned into an emperor was not the one we desired. We were sick of lies, of the unchanging, dismal lies broadcast on TV, the endless, groundless promises of a happy life. A long and happy life. Riot is always a thing of beauty. That is how I got interested. At school, I had this dream of becoming a graffiti artist, and I practiced graffiti in my school notepad. If you start your schoolwork on the first page and do your sketches in the back— Sooner or later, the two will meet in the middle. And next to your history notes, graffiti appears, which turns history into a different story.
0: Riot Days by Maria Alakinia is available now to download and own from Audible and iTunes.